While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus and at once said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were, the, were, who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray for our time in God's Word. Father, we are reminded both from what we have worshipped and, and sung together this morning and heard sung, as well as what we see in the text, that, that we are prone to flee and to run, but you are not. You do not forsake us. Yet, Lord, we forsake you. Help us, Lord, to see this and help us understand how we need to respond when we find ourselves fleeing, when we find ourselves running from the truth of your word, from your goodness, your grace, your mercy, and love. And help us this Lord's Day to repent and to believe. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you were to go to the United States Military Academy at West Point, you would see a, a number of, of monuments there, uh, tributes to, to great military leaders, many of whom have a history there at West Point. Uh, one specific series of monuments they have are plaques that they have to commemorate generals from the Revolutionary War. And on each of those plaques reads the, the general's name and a little information about them and when they were born, all except for one plaque that simply says, Major General, born 1740. This plaque stands there nameless for someone whose name we probably all recognize, Benedict Arnold. Uh, Benedict Arnold was a Revolutionary War soldier. He fought for uh, the United States Continental Army, and at one point he was put in charge, given command of West Point. But it was also during that time that he was scheming with the British to turn West Point over to them, to turn West Point over to the enemy. And when his scheme, when his plot was found out, well, then he left and fled and joined up with the British forces, making him one of the more famous traitors that we know of. And so when we think of traitor, when we think of betrayal, many people think of the name Benedict Arnold. And that's what his name is now famous for. And yet there is one name that is far more famous than Benedict Arnold's when it comes to being a traitor, when it comes to betrayal. And that's the name we see in our text this morning of Judas Iscariot. If you remember from our study of Matthew's Gospel, you know that we first see Judas there in Matthew chapter 10, 
where the disciples are named, where Matthew in his gospel says these are the twelve that Jesus called. And at the list of that twelve, at the very end of it, he mentions Judas Iscariot, who he then says, who was the betrayer? Who was the one who would betray Jesus? We don't see Judas specifically mentioned again until we get to Matthew 26, the chapter that we are now in. Uh, We see Judas Judas pointed out then in his betrayal. We see that he goes to the chief priests and the elders to see what they would pay him to hand over Jesus to them. And then we can infer from what takes place before that kind of what led up to this. You see, it was just before this that Judas was there at that Passover meal, what would become the Last Supper with Jesus. And uh, during that meal, Judas points out, or Jesus points out that Judas would be the one who would be the betrayer. See, just before this, there had been another meal. Uh, Jesus was there with the disciples at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And during that meal, Mary had come and poured some ointment on Jesus. And the disciples, the text tell us, uh, took offense to this. Uh, specifically, the Gospels tell us that it was Judas that took offense to this because he says this ointment could have been sold to feed the poor. The Gospels tell us also that he wasn't really concerned about the poor, that he was concerned about his own pockets, that he was put in charge of the treasury, and that he was taking money from it. And so when he saw this ointment, this perfume poured out, he saw what could have been money in his pocket. You see, what we see in Judas, in some ways, sets him apart from the disciples and that he was interested in individual gain, that he was interested in individual greed, that, that, that he would then go on to betray Jesus. But there are things about Judas that are very similar to the rest of the disciples. Uh, We know from the text that the disciples were looking for Jesus to have an earthly rule. That they were looking for the Messiah to take over the Roman authority at that time and to establish a kingdom here and now. We know that's what they were looking towards. And so we know that Judas, when he saw that's not what was going to happen, he ends up betraying Jesus but, but we also see the rest of the disciples in this process trying to see how to respond. That this conflict taking place in the text, this conflict that points us towards the point that the disciples were, were looking for a battle of the flesh. Now, that's what we see when we come into this garden scene. This garden scene that Jesus leading up to it had already said multiple times he was going to be betrayed. He was going to die. He was going to be raised again. And yet, the disciples failed to fully understand that. And so, they were looking for a battle of the flesh. Something material. Something here and now. And and we see that when we see the way they respond. And what they are responding to simply is that this great crowd is coming with swords and clubs. Uh, Judas has come. He has told the authorities that the one whom he kisses is going to be Jesus. Uh, uh, This is very practical in that day and age. There were not pictures. There were not photographs. Uh, Many of them may have seen Jesus, but in the night, in the dark, many would not recognize which one was Jesus. They wanted to be swift in their arrest of him. And so Judas had made this arrangement. When we look at the other gospel accounts, we get a, a fuller picture of what takes place here. And we get a better understanding that, that Jesus, again, is, is sovereign over all of this. Uh, if you'll remember, even leading up to these events, the chief elders and priests had made a point that, 
They didn't want to arrest Jesus during the Passover feast. Uh, They were afraid that the crowds would then rebel against them, and yet that's exactly when they end up arresting Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is really the one in, in charge here. Jesus is the one sovereign over these things, to the point that we even see in John's account that Jesus is the first one to speak when the guards come and saying, who do you seek? Uh, He steps out and takes the initiative. Who are you looking for? And when they say, Jesus of Nazareth, he responds and says, I am he. According to John's account, when Jesus says that, they all fall down. Uh, This is not an indication that they were clumsy. This is an indication that he was saying something that attributed deity, that attributed divinity. So you can go back in the scripture and you can see back in Exodus that encounter that Moses has there with God in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. And and there God is speaking to Moses in that encounter. And he says, Moses, you're going to go to the Pharaoh and you're going to tell him that I sent you and you're going to command him to set the people free. And you're going to go to those people and you're going to lead them out of captivity. And Moses says, God, who do I tell them sent me? They're going to want to know your name. Who do I say you are? And God says to him, I am who I am. You tell them, I am sent you. And then we come to the garden in Matthew 26. And in the Greek, this is a transliteration of that Hebrew term. Jesus says the same thing. They say they're there for Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't say, here's Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. He is saying he is God. And we see there fully God, fully man, and the Messiah. And it is so powerful that they drop down and fall. And then Jesus says again, who are you seeking? And they see Jesus of Nazareth. And then we see the events begin to unfold. We see Judas then come and and give Jesus this kiss and say, Greetings, Rabbi. And we see Jesus responding by saying, Friend, do what you came to do. Jesus is in control here. Jesus is not just looking at a battle of the flesh, and yet that's very much what the disciples are looking at. And you see that as you see one disciple's response. Matthew doesn't tell us specifically, but the other gospel accounts tell us it's Peter who comes out with the sword and cuts off the ear of one of the servants of the men coming to take Jesus. And that is not likely that Peter was just after his ear. He was probably after his head, but he got his ear. And we know from the other gospel accounts that that Jesus then miraculously restores, uh, heals that man, heals his ear. But before he does that, we see here in the text something he says to Peter. He tells him to put his sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And we look at this as somewhat of a rebuke, and yet we need to step back and realize that that Peter is probably doing very much what you and I would do. Peter is the one who had said to Jesus many times, Jesus, I would never betray you. Jesus, I would die with you. And Jesus has said to Peter and the disciples, there's going to come a point when they're going to come to arrest me, when they're going to come to kill me. And now that point is here. And so Peter is responding in the flesh to what he sees. He is standing up to protect Jesus. He thinks he needs to protect Jesus. I would hope for us this morning, if, if someone was to come into this church and seek to harm one of us, that we would step up to, to protect that person because we would want to protect one another. I was in a service 
several years ago at the last church I served at. I remember it well. Uh, it was during our, our third service. Uh, we were having the Lord's Supper that day, and I'd gotten up to, to, to give a short word from the text about the Lord's Supper to invite the deacons to distribute the elements. And about that time, a man stood up in the back of the sanctuary and started shouting things and walking forward towards the pulpit area. And quickly as he was walking, several people got up, grabbed him, and took him out of the worship center. I was very glad they did that. I had no idea what his intentions were. We found out later that uh, he he didn't have a weapon with him. Uh, He probably wouldn't have done much harm, but I didn't know that at the time. And so I was very glad that they stood up to protect me and stood up to protect others. In fact, afterwards I was talking to a few people in the church and and they said, well, we didn't know what was going on. We thought maybe it was a skit or something. So we just sat there and watched. Let me tell you right now, if someone comes in this church and starts walking up here and yelling at me, take them down. <laughs> it will not be a skit. You have my word. I want you to do that. And that is a sense of what we see here in the text. Peter is standing up for Jesus. Peter thinks he needs to protect Jesus. But the great difference among many between me and you and Jesus is Jesus didn't need Peter's protection. Jesus doesn't need our protection. You see, while the disciples think that there's a battle of the flesh taking place here, Jesus shows us clearly that he was fighting a battle against sin and against death we see that Jesus is not fighting the battle that Peter thinks he's fighting. When Peter says that maybe they'll betray you, but I never will, Jesus. Jesus, I'm willing to die for you. When when Peter steps up with that sword, he, he is doing what he thinks he needs to do. He thinks he needs to protect Jesus. He thinks he needs to die there for Jesus. And Jesus tells him, Peter... Those who take the sword will die by the sword. He's saying, listen, you can cut off all the ears you want, but eventually someone's going to go after your ear, and they're going to get more than your ear. Jesus' plan was not for Peter to die that way, and yet Jesus' plan very much was for Peter and the other disciples to die. You think about how the story unfolds and about how Peter would give his life, but it wouldn't be with a sword in his hand. It would be with the gospel in his hand as he was crucified for his faith and for the gospel he preached about our Lord Jesus. See, Peter came to understand something that we see in Jesus here, is that Jesus is not just fighting a battle with a sword. Jesus is fighting a battle against sin and death. Jesus points out to Peter and says, Listen, if I was fighting a battle against this, uh, with the sword, I could call on my Father and He could send down thousands of angels. He says 12 legions of angels. A Roman legion was about 6,000 soldiers. Jesus says, listen, at my word, you could have 70,000 plus angels here fighting this battle for us. And yet that's not the battle that Jesus is fighting. Jesus is fighting a far greater battle. He's fighting a battle against sin and death. He's fighting a battle that that we get a preview of all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. We're there in the garden. We have Adam and Eve who have fallen, who have sinned, who have betrayed. And yet God in His grace and mercy says to them that He has a plan. God in His grace and mercy says to them that there will be one who comes from Eve who will crush 
the head of the serpent. He is pointing towards what we are now reading about in the garden account. He is pointing towards Christ, who would come not just with a sword to take out his enemies, but he would come with a cross and he would die for you and me and them. See, the gospel makes it clear to us that that sin brings death and that we are all deserving of it. Eternal separation from God. But Christ on that cross, He takes the penalty for us. And if we will repent and place our faith in Him, then we receive the righteousness of Christ. And this is the battle Jesus is fighting. This is the battle that He is pointing out to Peter and to the disciples and to us. And He does it by helping them to see And by helping us to see the bigger picture. And we see that bigger picture when we look to God's Word. When we look to the Scriptures. And that's the last point I've put in your outline there this morning. That God's Word enables us to see this big picture of God's plan. See, that's where all these events take us. To where Jesus then turns to the disciples where he turns to this mob who has come to get him, and he has said, listen, why didn't you come take me earlier? I've been there preaching in the synagogue. I've been among you. Why didn't you take me? And he doesn't even give them a chance to answer that question before he answers that question. He says, the reason you didn't do it is because I'm in control. The reason you didn't do it is because I am sovereign over these things. The reason you didn't do it is so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. The reason you didn't do it is because God has a sovereign plan at work. And that plan rests on Christ going to the cross for our sin. You can't have Christianity, you can't have any of this without the cross. If we take the cross out of our faith, we have nothing. And Jesus here is saying, this is what all the Scriptures point to. This is what all the Bible points towards. And He is the one calling the shots. He is the one who is sovereign over all these things. As He says, the reason you didn't do this is so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. And then He says, that is why this has taken place. And we see in Him saying that the disciples flee. So what do we do with this this morning? What what do we take from this? It's very easy for us to read Matthew 26 and simply see here a story of betrayal. It's easy for us to take from this just another name of a traitor, much like we have Benedict Arnold, now we have Judas Iscariot, and we need to be careful that we don't betray Jesus like Judas did. But there's something much bigger taking place in this garden. That there's the sovereign plan of God unfolding. There's the sovereign plan of God that we need to understand and we need to see because, you see, like the disciples, we are prone to fight a battle against the flesh. We are prone to pick up the sword and think that that we need to fight for the name of Jesus. And yet, friends, Jesus doesn't need us to fight for Him. Jesus has already fought and won the battle for us. And here's why it's important to understand that. Because it is very easy for us, just like Peter, to when we hear the name of Jesus mocked, when we hear our faith mocked, when we hear Christ insulted, we, like Peter, want to pick up a sword. 
We, like Peter, want to stand up and say, no, that's my Lord. You, you don't speak of Him that way. But if we're not careful, we end up fighting the wrong fight. And so we go around to people and we say things to them like, well, well you, need to, you need to do what Jesus did. You need to think about what would Jesus do. But, but here's where that can become dangerous. is because we can end up teaching people just a moral list of how to live. We can say, well, Jesus did this, so you need to do this. And Jesus did this, so you need to do this. And we can give people a list of right and wrongs. And in the midst of that, we can fail to share with them the gospel. The gospel that doesn't ask, what would Jesus do? The gospel that presents, what did Jesus do? And Jesus went to the cross. And Jesus fought a battle against sin and death. And that's the battle that we need to focus on. The good news is, that battle's already won. We don't need to fight for Jesus, because He doesn't need us to fight for Him. See, Jesus stands out in contrast to, to any other religious figure that we've ever had in the world. You and I have watched on the news recently, people get incited over the treatment of the Prophet Muhammad in a video. And you've seen followers of Islam who have taken it upon themselves to pick up the sword and pick up the club, who have said, you have insulted him, you have humiliated him, we are now going to fight for him. And yet, what does Christ call us to do? Christ has already won the battle. Christ has been humiliated on our behalf. We need not get a mob together when people incite our Lord. We need to go to those people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to say to them, This King whom you insult, He was bruised for your transgressions. This King who you yell against and you mock, it is by His stripes that you and I are healed. This one who you seek to humiliate, He's already faced a far greater humiliation than you and I can lay upon him. And he bore it on your behalf and on my behalf. See, the message we see here in this text is not just one of of don't betray Jesus or don't be like the disciples and flee Jesus. Friends, we will be like the disciples and we will flee. We will be like Judas and we will betray. But the great news of the gospel is, is that God is faithful. That the one you have standing in the garden at the end of the day is Jesus. And the one you have standing beside the right hand of the Father today is Jesus. And while you and I are prone to wander and prone to leave and prone to stray, He is not. And this Lord's day, He says to you and He says to me, I have gone to this cross that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. My love, my mercy, my grace is sufficient. And so, friend, wherever you find yourself this morning, be comforted, be encouraged. That this faith does not rest in your works. This faith does not rest in whether you have gone or come or betrayed or done the right thing. This faith rests in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And the call of the gospel this Lord's Day is the call of the gospel every Lord's Day. If you find yourself fleeing, repent. If you find yourself betraying, repent. Turn from your sin and turn towards your Savior. Let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you 
that Christ Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. We thank you that Christ Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. We thank you that upon him was laid the chastisement of every person in this room this morning. But we thank you that by his stripes we are healed and we have been brought peace. Father, I pray for any of this Lord's Day who doesn't have peace. I pray for any who has tried their best to to do what Jesus would do and they failed to see what Jesus already did. I pray for any who's been just trying to live the Christian life in their own effort, that, that they would realize today that the Christian life is not something to live out in our own effort. The Christian life is something we live in response to what Christ did on the cross. And Lord, if they've never come to the point where they've bowed their knee, Lord, I pray that they will come to understand the gospel and repent and be saved. Lord, I pray for others who perhaps have bowed their knee, but maybe they find themselves like the disciples at the end of this passage, fleeing and running and scared. Perhaps right now they are fleeing from the truth of your word. Perhaps some this morning are fleeing in sin. Perhaps they think no one in the world knows about that sin. And maybe no one else knows about it, but Lord, you know about it. Father, I pray you would burden them with the conviction that they need to repent of that sin. And Father, I thank you that even in the midst of the disciples fleeing, we still see Christ here intent to go to the cross because he had a plan and he is working out that plan. And we thank you, Lord, that our faith rests in your plan and not our own. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen.